Hi, good afternoon. Welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm your host, Mary Fran Johnson, CEO of Mary Fran Johnson Media and a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about boardroom strategies and technology leadership. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the generous support of my friends at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now on LinkedIn and on YouTube, and we're going to welcome all of our viewers who are with us today to join in this conversation and send in your own questions. We'll be watching for those on our feed on LinkedIn and doing our best to pass them along to today's guest, who happens to be Matt Melbreck. He is the Vice President of IT for Coors Tech Incorporated, where he leads the global IT organization. Headquartered in Golden, Colorado, Coors Tech is a privately held, family-owned global supplier of engineered ceramics and advanced materials. It employs more than 5,000 people worldwide with an estimated revenue of over a billion. Coors Tech customers are found across numerous industries, everything from semiconductor manufacturing and energy and defense to medical devices, agriculture, and household goods. As the Vice President of IT, Matt oversees all of the strategy and partners closely with various business units. His team of about 100 technologists manage all of the IT resources, systems, and processes, everything from ERP and manufacturing-related systems to infrastructure and information security. Last year, Coors Tech IT brought home a CIO 100 Innovation Award for its use of advanced analytics in IoT and um, machine learning to connect production machinery at its 25 manufacturing sites around the world. Before he joined the company in 2017, Matt spent 18 years with Eaton Corporation, which is a $20 billion power management company, and he last served there as VP of IT for its $7.5 billion industrial sector. Matt, welcome. It's so nice to have you here today. Great to see you again, Mary Fran. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Let's start, as we often do, with the big picture question about Coors Tech's business and how it's been doing. I think we read so much about supply chain disruption in the world now and all the pandemic uncertainties. Put us in the picture for what that's like right now at Coors Tech. Sure. Uh, you know, Coors Tech serves a lot of different markets. And so through the pandemic, and we saw some ups and some downs. Mm -hmm. uh, half of what we do goes into the making of semiconductors. And I think, as we all know, that industry is booming. Uh, there's yeah. uh, uh, you know, exponential growth in demand. Um, and so while we've seen some downturns in some of our, our uh, markets, although many of those or most of those are rebounded, you know, the semiconductor business really has taken off. And, and for us, our challenge um, from a supply chain perspective um, hasn't been as great from a say material resource point of view. Mm -hmm. Our supply chain teams, operations teams, they've done a fantastic job uh, flexing and getting creative on inventory strategies, um, working with our suppliers and building relationships uh, to make sure that we're continuing to keep our operations running. You know, some of our bigger challenges are actually on the people side, um, you know, making sure we've got the talent in the right place mm -hmm. and balancing that with what's needed to be produced. So a lot of really creative thought uh, from our HR community, um, our talent mm -hmm. acquisition, and our operations teams to, to make that happen. And then obviously be transparent with our customers about where we're at and fulfilling those orders as fast as we can. Yeah. Have you found in all the different industries that you worked with, work with, are there, who is kind of at the top of the difficulty chain in terms of getting the supplies they need? Kind of your expert oh. opinion on that. 
Yeah. Um, you know, it's really kind of spread across the board. A lot of the materials we use are used in a lot of different industries. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't say that one industry is necessarily pulling on the other from that perspective. Our challenge is mostly making sure we've got it in the right factories to produce the right parts at the right time. Okay. So our planning functions, our sales functions, uh, you know, having to work arm in arm um, to make sure we've got the people and the materials in the right places at the right time. So it's not really industry specific as much as it is, you know, um, just how we flex based on the demand. Mm -hmm. Well, and I, uh, the, one of the projects that you mentioned when we discussed this earlier, getting ready for this interview, was uh, called the Source to Pay Project, which is one of the ways in the early stages that you are thinking about supply chain, not just managing any of the difficulties today, but even going forward. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, obviously, you know, the, the supply chain needs to continue to, is, is dynamic and is continuing to evolve. Mm -hmm. And with that, we're trying to continue to evolve our processes and our tools to make our, our procurement teams, our sourcing teams more nimble and more capable. So we've embarked on a, I'll call it an e-commerce on the back end kind of project mm -hmm. that we all source to pay. And it's really about automating as much as we can um, and tying closely with our suppliers in the sourcing process so we can source faster and better um, so we can procure faster mm -hmm. uh, and better and, and more dynamic. And then obviously how we manage things like invoices um, and, and putting in a lot of hyper automation around those processes as well. So really streamlining things and modernizing, you know, I'll use that overly used term of digital, yeah. uh, digitizing that part of our business. Um, but it's, it's a critical strategy for us to evolve as the world is evolving. Of course. Well, you know, it's funny you, you said that such an old term to talk about automating. It's almost a relief these days because we hear so much about digitizing. And, you know, I think especially for people outside the industry, it's become one of those kind of fluffy terms where, well, what exactly does it mean when you're digitizing and all that? Um, yeah. The In fact, we talked about that, too, that every uh, companies are digitizing from the back office to the front office to how they deal with customers and how they work with their own employees. Um, how does that impact an industry like CoreStech, where you are your, mo your B2B business for the most part? You're not dealing directly with uh, customers, and you're a make-to-order, an engineer-to-order type of business. So when we think about digital transformation for a business like yours, um, how, does that, how does that play out in your day-to-day -day life? Yeah, well, I'm a glutton for punishment, apparently, because we're also <laughs> taking on a lot of uh, revamping of our front of our front end of our business and through e-commerce solutions. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're implementing um, e-commerce tools to um, manage that high touch process. that tends to happen in a make to order engineer to order type of business. Mm -hmm. You know, we collaborate on designs, we collaborate on orders, um, but we will still want to be able to make that process as streamlined and as efficient as possible, both for the customers as well as for our internal sales teams. Okay. Uh, we're deploying some of those digital technologies right now as well. Our, again, early stages like the Source to Pay project um, to, to make that happen. So we're really looking at both the front end and the back end of our business at the same time. Mm -hmm. Well, and that certainly sounds like it requires a lot of talented IT folks, a lot of technology is involved there. Um, let's do a before, uh, a back then and now kind of comparison about uh, as you came in as the vice president of IT back in 2017, how, does the, how has the organization changed? What sort of reorgs or reordering did you bring with you when you came from Eaton Corporation? Yeah, you know, I, I was very blessed to get a lot of great experiences with Eaton, and that allowed me, I think, come in here and 
um, approached essentially a turnaround scenario um, pretty aggressively. Nice. Uh, I appreciate the company here, you know, allowing me to, to make some of the changes needed. You know, I walked in, we had a lot of really good talent within the organization, um, but we really weren't as aligned to the business as we needed to be. Frankly, we had kind of been disinvited from a lot of the tables because we just struggled with that engagement and we needed to rebuild some credibility. Um, and so that came with a lot of process change from process maturation. Mm-hmm. Definitely uh, brought in a lot of talent from the outside to, to beef up and people who know what good looks like. Um, you know, at the time we were bringing in um, a lot of what I call mid-career individuals, people okay. who experienced, could hit the ground running, because we just had a lot of work to do. Um, we like to say we didn't have low-hanging fruit. We had watermelons on the ground. <laughs> so we get them picked up quickly and get mm-hmm. to the low-hanging fruit and then get to know some of the more challenging things we're doing now. Mm-hmm. And the experienced people we brought in have just done uh, incredible work to move us forward. And now we've started to shift a little bit more towards how do we continue to develop the talent that we've had and that we brought in and some of the younger and newer talent that we're bringing into the organization and Mm -hmm. trying to, you know, continue to pivot to where the business needs us. And we've gone through different iterations. We need different skills at different times. And we, you know, we try and train up and and move people around into different roles based on what we're working on. Mm -hmm. Yes, I know. I think we mentioned mentioned when we talked earlier about um, internship programs are starting to increase and that there's more of a focus now on uh, more entry-level folks. Um, it just is, um, I, I, I hear CIOs everywhere talk about how difficult it is to not just find and attract IT talent, but then to retain it. And I feel like during the pandemic and all that we've been through in the last two years, there's a much sharper focus on the retaining, on the keeping the talent you have. Uh, talk a little bit about some of the specific approaches you've taken to make sure that that happens, that you kind of keep attrition at as low a number as possible. Yeah, it, it's it's an interesting challenge for, for everybody uh, around the world. And obviously not just in the IT function here everywhere, but, you know, we, we certainly, you know, really put an emphasis on how do we give people challenging assignments, give them things that are fun mm-hmm. to work on and move the needle for the company. And so when we kind of strategize every year and, and pivot as the business pivots, we're constantly looking for how do we put people into new roles to, to stretch them, to grow them. Uh, I'm a firm believer that if you're not a little uncomfortable, you're not growing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we like to throw people into some challenging uh, initiatives. Yeah. And, and people, uh, I feel great. The team has responded exceptionally well. Um, they've all, they've all grown tremendously. The other thing is um, really trying to be purposeful in, and transparent and overly communicative at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do monthly all hands meetings where we share what's going on with the business. And, and we talk about uh, different strategies and challenges that we're all facing. And we also like to celebrate the wins every month. We're talking about the mm-hmm. wins that it, they can be small wins and they can be big wins, but there's lots of wins that are happening all the time. And I think, uh, you know, it's important that people see that and recognize that and, and hopefully the team feels an appreciation that, you know, we, we value what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Maybe the last thing I'd mention with respect to the pandemic itself, mm-hmm. you know, we um, like everyone had to flex a little bit sure. with people's lives. And uh, the nice thing with course tech is we, we did have some flexible work arrangements even before the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Um, now they exaggerated things quite a bit. Um, we had to pivot a little, but um, we've, we've continued to try and support, each individual, and that goes really to the core of our values as a company. Mm-hmm. Um, 
those values is really about how we we really value the dignity and worth of every individual and everybody's circumstance is different. And, mm-hmm. you know, with our IT function as well as others, we really try to understand each person's situation and work with them, um, understanding we're all here to, to achieve the strategy of the company. Yeah. Well, and you have, you don't have just a U.S. based um, employee base. I think you told me you have a fourth of your folks are over in Japan. And so you're already all the way around the world with this. So the idea that remote work and a little more flexibility was a, a bit in the company DNA doesn't seem so foreign these days anyway. Yeah. Yeah. We were, we were well positioned. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and as a company going outside of IT, and we learned very fast uh, from our, our our colleagues in Asia mm-hmm. on how to deal with some of the pandemic challenges and uh, put the right things in place. And we were able to adopt that across the rest of the world very, very quickly, probably faster than most organizations. Really? Uh, so credit to them for helping us around the rest of the world be um, mm-hmm. nimble. Okay. What's an example of one of those, especially ones that you learned from your colleagues in Asia? Yeah. So as a manufacturing company, our employees need to be around to make stuff. And uh, you can't so do that from your living room. <laughs> yeah. Right. Mm. And, and so the, the safety procedures, the, 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 the temperature checking, the mask wearing, the, the hand washing, all the things that became part of our normal day-to-day lives, mm-hmm. they implemented before the rest of us. And so okay. we learned kind of how to make that process work and how to implement it across our factories uh, and our offices around the world. Um, so again, it was a really great learning and, and you know, credit to the company here of learning from others uh, on how to do this quickly. Yeah. The, um, you'd mentioned too, this hasn't stopped the company from, from building. You've, you've produced, you have a new factory in Thailand and you've had to expand your Korea operations. Talk a little bit about some of the, the global steps forward you've been taking. Yeah, you know, our, our operations team and, and our commercial teams um, have done a really great job strategizing on where do we need to be to service our customers. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the company's also, you know, in a position where they can make good long-term decisions and strategies. So mm-hmm. uh, we've been in the process, as you said, we built a new facility in Thailand. We've expanded in other locations. We've moved things around. We've expanded operations in some of our European facilities, some in our, our U.S. facilities as well to really put us in a position where we can do things like multi-site manufacturing, where we can produce the same part in multiple places um, and make sure that we're doing it the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we need to expand our, and, and create that flexibility to your point earlier about supply chain and our customers. Mm-hmm. How can we be nimble to service our customers' needs by creating some of this dynamic environment? Yeah. Well, and you mentioned too, when we talked, um, you had spent a big chunk of your career in a publicly held corporation. And now you're in a family-owned, privately held uh, company. How is that different? I've had a lot of very interesting chats over the years with CIOs who were kind of amazed about how quickly you can move and make decisions when you're not doing a quarter-by-quarter thinking, which is the way that happens in publicly held companies, of course. Um, Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, it's definitely a shift. Um, There's Mm -hmm. a lot of different dynamics that happen with it. Uh, you know, we, as I just said, um, are in a position where we can make long-term strategic decisions and plans and truly follow through and execute on them. Whereas mm-hmm. when you're in the, the chase the quarter kind of mentality that sometimes can happen in the public world, it's hard to stay focused on those long-term strategies. Yeah. Uh, so we've been really blessed and, and, and the family has invested a lot of money into the organization to modernize and 
create capacity. Um, and and while we are very good with our frameworks around decision making, um, mm-hmm. we, we don't do things haphazardly. Um, there's a big emphasis on trying to eliminate bureaucracy, uh-huh. and that allows us to, you know, make decisions fast um, and, and transparently. They also enable their 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 functional leaders um, to mm-hmm. make decisions and run. I feel yeah. very fortunate that I'm I'm quite empowered to um, to do what I'm supposed to do, and yeah. that's you know understand and be an expert in the IT world and implement what the company needs to move it forward and and some and be able to think ahead of where the company's going, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's in the cybersecurity space or uh, in what we need on the shop floor in terms of systems you know, to make some of those decisions and move and be, and, and I frankly just feel very supported. In yeah. Doing it, which, yeah. You know, isn't always the case sometimes when you're dealing with larger organizations, sometimes you feel a little hamstrung. I don't feel that way at all here. It's, it's really empowering. It's mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's also probably very clear what the process is. Like once you get the approval, you go off and start doing things. That's, that's what has, <laughs> yeah. that's, that's the thing that so many of um, the CIOs I've talked to that have made this switch from public into privately held companies they said they expected to go through presenting business plans and going before the board and doing all this stuff, but the CEO or whoever was running the company would just say, "No, just go do it." <laughs> it's yeah. It, it took me a little bit, honestly. To, <laughs> to, to, are you sure it's okay for me to go forward here? Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I feel really blessed. That, you know, they, they fortunately, I, I think the team, the IT team, has done a great job building credibility, mm-hmm. uh, delivering, and you know, they they allow us to then go do what we know is the right thing to do for the organization and they yeah. support us. And yeah. that's all like, that's all anybody in my chair can ever ask for. Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the tactics that you, uh, in, you employed as their leader when you came in 2017 to kind of shore up and tighten that relationship with the business. What were some of the behaviors you needed to change? What were some of the, the new traditions that you put into effect? Yeah, we needed to do uh I'll call it a little bit more business relationship management. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to do a lot more listening and understanding what the the business is looking for, um, and and really change our tone from no, we can't do that to let's figure out how we get to yes. Maybe the answer is not now, but let's figure out how we get to a yes. And and so some of the people we brought in and, and some of the, the the talent that was already here, we focused a lot on building business acumen and understanding the business processes. You know, I'm a firm believer that IT is in everything that the world does these days. The world runs on IT. And, mm-hmm. and we need to be experts as much as we can in other people's functions and figure out ah. how to support them and, and be a strategic advisor. Um, and sometimes that is saying, well, that maybe that isn't the right project you want to go do, and here's why. Mm-hmm. Maybe we should pivot and go do this project instead first. Um, and so it was really about putting people in place in alignment with our commercial teams, our operations teams, HR, finance, mm-hmm. um, just really, really embedding people as much as we can. And the other piece was, um, frankly, as I said earlier, we needed to learn how to deliver more effectively. Okay. Um, and we're far from perfect and we never will be, but um, we've gotten much, much better at, I'll call it basic ITIL type of processes, um, just basic rigor um, to manage the workload but also in, in the context of project management and, and portfolio management and program management. Um, we've put a lot of processes and, and tools in place, especially mm-hmm. in the last 12 to 18 months to really continue that, that, that journey of maturing so that we can deliver more effectively. Mm-hmm. And when so you- it's all about building relationships and then 
you know, building the credibility that you can deliver and support the things that you're advising on. Yeah. And that um, that brought back a lot of uh, a lot of classic IT. ITIL, the Information Technology Information Library. Yeah, it, I think that's right. Integration Library. I know we refer to the acronym so long, and you forget what they stand for. Yeah. Um, the uh, let's talk a little bit more about uh, that um, your machine data insights program. That was the um, basis for your innovation award last year, and I know it's it's rolled data insights is rolled out in all your factories right now. But that's really just the beginning, right? It is. It uh, tell us about how that program has gone and what the next stages for it are. Yeah. So um, our. our- our project to connect machines uh, really started off a couple of years ago as a called a small pilot. And, mm-hmm. and really what it was about is trying to provide real time data about what's going on in our machines so that our operators and our ship supervisors and our plant managers mm-hmm. can see really what's going on. And the reason why this is so important is when you're working in a materials company like we are, um, yield and predictability of yield, your output, is really, really critical so that you can manage your capacity and manage delivery for your customers. And we didn't really have a great handle on being able to control what that output was going to look like. For example, say we were going to make 100 pieces, we might make 110, we might make 90. We're not 100% sure when we start the process. And so, and that's just because of the nature of what we do. Um, So the more that we can understand what's going on in the machines and look for variation, we can predict quality spills or scrap increases or those kind of things. And so that was really the genesis is let's make sure we can get yields out in a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. We started with a smaller pilot um, with a, a hand about 15 machines mm-hmm. uh, here in Golden. I kind of figured out, could we do make the technology work? Could we sense, could we put sensors or tap into PLCs on machines to collect this data effectively? Yeah. And then what are the use cases we can draw out of it? And whether it's, again, looking for variations in power or in cycles or in pressures or temperatures um, to then other use cases around, you know, predictability of of output. And that project caught fire pretty quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, And I feel really blessed. I mean, this was really an IT driven thing. We partnered very closely with operations and engineering, Mm -hmm. um, but we really kind of pushed it along. And now it's created a bit of a a flywheel pull effect where everybody's asking us to connect more and more and more machines. Yeah. And now we've got north of 600 machines connected around the world um, and collect, you know, real time seeing what's going on on our shops. Mm-hmm. As you said, this is a tip of the iceberg for us because yeah. we're also now looking at how do we use that data in different ways, but it's also part of a broader strategy that we've had uh, around what we call it a model plan. Okay. And it's, it's how we modernize our shop floors um, to make our operators more efficient and make our plant managers and supervisors more capable of making good decisions. Mm-hmm. Now, is Model Plans Initiative, is that another way of saying uh, smart factory technologies? I think all of us that are out in the rest of the regular world, we, we read a lot about having smart homes and smart factories and smart shop floors. And is that in kind of writ large, is that what we're talking about? It's, it's, you could put it in that context, mm-hmm. sure. Um, you know, for everybody, it's probably going to mean a little bit something different, like yeah. the word digital. Like the word right? digital, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it, for us, it's, it's really about how do we make our operators more efficient and give them that single pane of glass to run what they do. Okay. Um, our operators are critical to our functions, as are the machines that make parts. And so we've got a, essentially an orchestration 
of five different technologies that really, and those of you who are watching that are in the manufacturing world, you appreciate this. It really separates the shop floor from the ERP system. Ah. A, a lot of times the ERP systems become a, a real challenge on the shop floor to um, be nimble and, and support things. And then it also hamstrings your ability to upgrade or replace or modernize your ERP systems. So what we've done with model plan is really put in things like manufacturing execution systems and maintenance systems mm -hmm. and statistical process control systems and pro document management and, um, and machine data, real, real time machine data, what's going on um, and putting it all together in a single pane of glass to make our operators more effective. Okay. So it serves a lot of purposes. It, it helps us with managing the technology from an ERP yeah. point of view, but most importantly, it's allowing us to look at what's going on in the shop floor and execute and make sure that transactions are happening properly and mm -hmm. that we're, we're executing what we need to for the company, handling all of our inline inspections and quality yeah. check, all of the stuff that you need to do in a manufacturing world. Well, and it sounds too that it, like it's a lot more pragmatic in terms of the tools, the, t the digital tools that you can put directly into the hands of your managers on the shop floor. Um, I have never, I don't think I've ever interacted directly with an ERP system. And honestly, it's not really something on my bucket list. <laughs> so I can be scared. Yeah, I imagine being able to separate that, you know, the uh, that, that uh, idea of that one pane of glass where you can figure everything out. Um, that has been one of the dreams that goes on in IT leadership going back a couple of decades at this point. And I think that's why we're most excited about it, Marie mm -hmm. Fran, is that you know, we're actually doing what, you know, people talk about or think about or, you know, try and put some buzzwords around. Yep. We're actually doing and, yep. and credit to the team who really worked really hard to make these systems talk to each other. And it is a really interesting orchestration mm -hmm. dance that they do. And it's not overly complicated, to be honest, but it's 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 unique in that it, it allows us to really create that experience for the operator. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, uh, not lock us into specific technologies necessarily. Right. So it's, right. And then the beauty going back and sorry for the long answer here, but the beauty of what we're doing now with the operational data, the machine manufacturing execution system data, mm -hmm. as an example, and the machine data that we're collecting off of the machines themselves mm -hmm. is now we can do some very creative machine learning types of programs with merging those data sets together and start to look for predictive trends of yeah. what's going to happen in our environment and start to be more prescriptive with our, our factories on, hey, when this happens, you need to go do this. Mm -hmm. So we're in the early stages of exploring those opportunities, but we're positioning ourselves to be able to do that. And that's the exciting part. Yeah. Are there any of those, are they, uh, these efforts, are they too early yet to talk about an actual example in the real world? Is this still kind of test lab sort of activities? No, or? We, we, we got the, we actually went live last week in another plant with our model plant environment. Oh, cool. Um, <laughs> we have another one going live in about 10 days. Mm -hmm. uh, so we're, we've gone live, I think in seven plants now um, with the full suite of, of tools. Um, we're very working very aggressively to get uh, several more deployed this year and next year. Mm -hmm. uh, again, because it does position us for the machine learning opportunities to make our operations better. It also gives us flexibility with some of our IT technical debt around things like ERP systems um, yeah. and those. The um, 
Yes, I think what we talked, gosh, it was only just a week or two ago, and you had six implementations in the factories, and now you're up to seven. So it is rolling out pretty quickly. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Yeah, we'll have eight before the end of the month. Yeah. And um, also, you mentioned that you've got a lot of the teamwork happening. is not just IT people working with each other. There's a lot of involvement with your engineering groups and the research and development arm of CoorsTech. Kind of sketch out what that what that looks like, especially from your position as the VP of IT. How do you make that happen, or do you just step back and people go meeting and bring you things and you sign them and off we go? <laughs> well, I, again, I have to talk about the team. I've got some really talented individuals mm-hmm. who, who build strong partnerships with groups like our engineering group. Um, our maintenance teams in the factories with things like maintenance management. And, and that's really critical to keeping a healthy factory. Um, so we, we've got built some really tight relationships with those groups and continue to evolve them and, and make them part of the process as we're, um, and taking their feedback. Uh, you know, one of the things as you deploy new technologies and things like our model plant, we're not going to get it perfect out of the gate mm-hmm. uh, or with our, our machine connectivity program. We're not going to get it right all the time. They come to us with a lot of new use cases. Hey, I'd like to connect this machine because I want to be able to look at X, mm-hmm. uh, and which is great. We love it. Or from a usability perspective, hey, it'd be really great if we had this on one screen or these two screens. So there's a collaborative effort that happens with our operators and our, our, our maintenance people, our engineers. And, and again, great, great credit to our teams to, to do that. And I think everybody in the company's marching to the same goal, and that's what makes it effective. Yeah. Um, the R&D side is an interesting one. We have a, a really great um, technology team, and we're a material science organization in our in our core. Okay. Um, so our uh, the R&D team um, we've worked with over the last few years um, was really our first big foray into machine learning with them. Um, okay, good. Really, it was centered around um, how do we expedite the R&D process. When you're dealing in a materials company, a lot of what you're looking for is different properties. Mm-hmm. Doing things to different materials to create a char- characteristic set at the end that's going to meet the customer's needs. So mm-hmm. for us, it might be able to withstand specific temperatures or corrosive corrosion resistance or mm-hmm. some other um, severe condition, um, is off, which is often the case in why people use ceramics. Mm-hmm. Um, but traditionally, in material science organizations, that R&D cycle is very long because you have to go through experiments and right. you have to figure out, is this going to work or not? And so, you know, our R&D team had a great idea of working with a partner on um, doing some machine learning to uh, take some of the data we got from both successful and failed experiments over time mm-hmm. and material characteristics and say, can we predict if we do X, are we going to get Y as a characteristic set? And um, it's been a really fun program to be associated with and partner with. Mm-hmm. You know, I've worked in a more advisory with some of this. From a technology team, our IT team has mm-hmm. worked very closely with what we call our technology or R&D team to harden some of their processes for data collection, make it more streamlined, help it be more effective so we can get data to our partner more quickly yeah. to then get into the algorithms. Um, and so it's an ever-growing program for us. We're rolling more and more products platforms mm-hmm. and programs into it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's been really fun to work with that group. It's a, a brilliant group of scientists, literally scientists in yes. many cases, 
um, to look at data in a new way and create a new business opportunity. Well, and when we were talking about and you were explaining material sciences to me, I, I actually got a great visual. You said we get stuff out of the ground, we mix it up, we make it into products, and it's all very intense and experimental. And, and be, yeah. yeah, I mean, it just, you made it sound like kind of fun science, you know, the sort of stuff that, yeah. You, yeah. <laughs> like playing in the dirt as a kid, you know, you just kind of throw stuff together and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The, um, let me see, I wanted to ask about, does this mean that you need, uh, do you have a greater need now for data scientists in your IT organization? Uh, how are you organized? Do you have the classical groups of kind of the run and the build and the support groups, or has that all changed? Uh, I certainly don't break the team down that way. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we more focus on specific areas of, of functional discipline, I'll call it. Okay. So we have our infrastructure teams, um, which are, you know, dealing with our system administration our networks, um, those sorts of things that help, you know, our PC support um, processes as well, that mm -hmm. kind of stuff. Um, we have our manufacturing systems team, which model plant falls right in the heart of along with ERP. Yeah. We have corporate systems, which includes some of our, you know, commercial or sales tools, HR systems, finance systems, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, we also have a data and analytics organization. And, and that's really where, you know, the um, traditional business intelligence would fall, as well as this, you know, what I call advanced analytics growing area with machine learning and AI. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have our cybersecurity arm as well. Mm -hmm. um, that is such an important part of the world these days. Yes. Yes. I was thinking, uh, you know, when we were getting ready for this interview and you'd mentioned cybersecurity and how that's kind of always job one. And then my natural follow-up question is like, oh, well, let's talk about how you do cybersecurity and nobody ever wants to. <laughs> but did you yeah. have to, did you create um, a new team for that? Because you have information security all reporting to you. So do you have a CSO and a team of folks doing that? Was that structured that way when you arrived? It was not structured that way when we arrived. Okay. Frankly, we had a ways to go to, to get to where we needed to be. Um, you know, the team has done amazingly the last uh, two, three years, really putting in place a really strong uh, program. I do have a person who, uh, who leads that group for us, uh, Director of Security mm -hmm. and Compliance. Um, and uh, we do have some team members that, that work there. Uh, but it's really kind of a shared responsibility across their entire IT function. And mm -hmm. really, not even just IT. At the end of the day, cybersecurity is a responsibility of all employees. Yes. I believe that. Uh, we've spent a lot of time educating, uh, communicating to our global population of employees that this is important mm -hmm. and how to protect yourself, not just at work, but also at home. Yeah. Um, but we have, you know, we do have a focus on it, but it was something we had to grow into. Um, as an organization. Mm -hmm. Well, I imagine too, as, as the IT organization was growing and adapting to these new ways of working, it probably changed things on the business side as well. R&D folks and engineers that hadn't been working with each other in some of these teams. Um, you'd mentioned that you're kind of blurring the data science people from the commercial teams into the data and analyst teams. Is there yeah. any particular structure do you use for that? Are we talking about agile well, teams producing products? or um, You could talk, you, you hear the term fusion team sometimes. You could look at oh, it that way. Okay. We have, as part of our data analytics strategy, we were very purposeful in including a major component of what we call collaborative BI or collaborative analytics. Okay. And what that means is I don't want every request for a report change or, or data to necessarily come through the IT function. That doesn't allow us to be nimble. There are a right. lot of brilliant people that sit in our different functions. Mm -hmm. And it's important that 
we help them be successful um, and take advantage of some of the capabilities they have. And, and so many of them are just looking for data and we can be the stewards of getting them qualified data sets so they can go off and run, mm-hmm. give them the tools to be able to go do that. So we have partners in sales or commercial, we have partners in HR, um, finance, uh, operations, um, and then we literally collaborate together. Mm-hmm. Uh, they meet very regularly as a community. Yeah, uh, We share ideas and best practices and learn from each other. And then we have, I call it fusion teams um, mm-hmm. or, or project teams, whatever you want to call them, mm-hmm. um, where we work together on, um, on programs to get data in a place that they can then access and use and go run with. Mm-hmm. Um, that allows us to be a lot more nimble. Yeah. Um, we're still growing in this space. Uh, to your earlier question, yeah, we've got a need for more data scientist kinds of skills. Mm-hmm. At the same time, we need to continue to uh, enhance and modernize our data architecture. So well, there's a lot of moving pieces. Um, yeah. But we're doing all that kind of simultaneously. Yeah. Well, and I really like that. I haven't heard that te- that term before of fusion teams. And I really like that one because uh, sometimes when we talk about agile, it's become one of those terms like innovation or digital where it means so many different things to different people. And when you think about fusion teams, well, that right away makes me think of fusion cuisine, which is usually very delicious. You know, you're you're exactly. mixing really cool elements together. Um, well, if you do it right, it's great. If you do it wrong, you can taste pretty bad. Well, you, the thing is, right you know right away, don't you? that something right. isn't working. And it sounds like you have the kind of company culture at Course Tech where people are not afraid to let you know if, th- if something isn't going well. Uh, tell, talk about that, about the culture of the company inside. I know a lot of CIOs have, and, and, and VPs uh, of, uh, in leadership positions in IT have gotten a little concerned about losing that special something as we've been going through the pandemic that, you know, that used to be the feeling that the teams would coalesce by being in person. And now there's so much of it that we do over video conferencing, like we're doing this talk today. Um, So give me your thoughts on that. How do you kind of, how do you keep that, um, that flywheel moving forward? Yeah. You know, it's a, it's a big question. Um, the, let me start with the culture here. I, mm-hmm. I, one of the biggest reasons I came to Corstech was the the culture, the ethics, the values of the organization. And um, everything we do is really rooted in our Corstech way, um, in our values, mm-hmm. and, and being better today, being better together, and being better tomorrow. Um, and to your question, Ronnie, you know, how can we share with each other? We really believe in being transparent with each other and honest. And, and at the same time, valuing every person in our organization and their opinions and their views and their needs. Um, and I won't pretend to rattle off all of our values, but there are a lot mm-hmm. of great ones. Um, but they're really what we're rooted in as an organization. And at the end of the day, it's about treating people the right way mm-hmm. and, and doing what you say um, and saying what you mean. Um, that's really also rooted in our organization. And uh, we really that's really kind of our, 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 how we're centered as an organization. So when we've gone through the pandemic, it's really about how do we continue to live those values every single day and take yeah. care of each other. Not going to lie, you know, being remote does sometimes make it more challenging. Mm-hmm. Sometimes do some of those water cooler discussions or you know, sharing a birthday cake in a conference room together as a team. Um, I oh, remember no. when we, uh, we first started bringing people back a little bit more last year, I remember that, you know, being in a conference room with a, a small team of mine that one of their, uh, one or two of the teammates had a, a birthday. Mm-hmm. It was great to 
were in the room together sharing and collaborating and the smiles on their faces. So there is some of that that, that's harder to do virtually and you have to be purposeful and try and make it happen uh, through structured discussions and Mm -hmm. structure, but planned, Hey, let's get together kinds of uh, events sometimes. Intentional, intentional communication. Yes. Because I was thinking of that birthday party and there's also the eating cake, you know, eating cake with other people just feels different. (laughs) So. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we've really tried to step up as a company, um, mm-hmm. our communications. We revamped our intranet over the last uh, year and a half mm-hmm. uh, uh, to use that as a, a more inclusive communications vehicle, uh, using things like Yammer as an internal social media tool. Yeah. Uh, we've also been rolling out digital signage in our factories and facilities around the world um, so we can relay messages to all shop for individuals as well. It's not just the office workers. So Great. it's... Um, a lot of great work by our communications organization, mm-hmm. uh, our teams, and, and, you know, the IT team as well. Yeah. So being in the well, and you made, uh, uh, one point you made to me was that people, uh, everybody being virtual actually ended up having people feel closer because it was more, uh, you know, you had an even playing field. Everybody was kind of dealing with the same difficulties and, you know, not having the right place to work at home and, you know, kids running around and dogs barking and all that sort of thing. How have, how have you adjusted your leadership style to do more of this kind of intentional use of virtual technologies in these good ways that bring people closer together? What are some of the things you have changed about the way you lead this group? Uh, so a couple of things. One, early on in the, the pandemic, I think we were all doing the same kinds of things. You know, let's do these virtual happy hours and that kind of stuff. And some companies continue to do that. Um, it's not something I personally have continued to do. Um, mm-hmm. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I've, okay. I've tried to, um, you know, make sure that we continue to do things like skip level meetings. So. Mm-hmm. They can be virtual, that's okay, but continue that dialogue, continue getting the feedback and really um, making sure all of our managers are putting an emphasis on listening to our employees on, on what are their challenges, what are their needs, and mm-hmm. how can we be better. Um, and then trusting our employees to, to do the right thing. Um, you know, I think the fact that we've trusted our employees to, um, to work remotely in many cases um, but having clear goals mm-hmm. has allowed them to, to thrive and stay focused. So it, it's not for me necessarily. We've all got to be, you know, on a, a team's call all the time. So we know what's going on, but you do put cadence in and each team mm-hmm. is a little bit different too. Yeah. Um, I have sub teams that, okay, every day we're going to do a stand up 15 minute meeting that works for them. Great. Other teams we're going to meet every other day, mm-hmm. or we're going to all be in the office twice a week or whatever the case might be. Mm-hmm. Um, what we didn't want to do is say one size fits all because that isn't reality. Um, and that isn't, know, it isn't flexible either. And flexibility. Exactly. And we're, yeah. we're all about flexibility. And, 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 and I, it was also important for me to let our team, our managers kind of navigate these waters a little bit and figure mm-hmm. out what's best for their team. Cause each team is a little bit unique in what their needs are. Some have to be closer collaborating with other functions mm-hmm. as an example. They need to be in the office a little bit more at times. Mm-hmm. Others, maybe not. And so I really wrestled with it, to be honest with you, um, for a while, trying mm-hmm. to figure out, quote unquote, be fair uh, to everyone. Yeah. To me, being fair at the end of the day was finding out what, what's the best solution for the dynamics that we have in yeah. each scenario. 
Well, and I think that's a great way to look at it. I think about the way um, a lot of us in, you know, in my generation have parented, where we don't think about treating everybody exactly the same and equally amongst our kids. It's more like the, you know, what's going to work best for this particular one. It's having a rigid set of rules. Uh, I think that may be one of the first things that got thrown out the window once we all got into life in the pandemic. Um, uh, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about some of the emerging technology areas that you have found most interesting. I know we've mentioned, of course, uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I know that IoT, the Internet of Things, and the sensors is, of course, huge when you think about smart factories and all. What about technologies like blockchain? Um, I've seen a lot of, when I was reading up on supply chain disruptions, you know, to get ready for our, our talk today, I saw that there seems to be a lot more interest around technologies like that. So uh, given your very deep background in technology in the manufacturing sector, what is the stuff that you're watching these days? What, what do you see when yeah. you think about emerging and what is going to be most interesting? You know, obviously we're putting a lot of energy around, again, what I call advanced analytics, that machine learning and that mm -hmm. AI. Uh, and I'll come back to AI in a moment, but a lot of it around machine learning pieces, you know, how can we just use data better and in new ways to improve decision-making? And it's just mm -hmm. a different way of doing it. And um, because the technology has evolved so much for us, it's about how do we, learning how to use those platforms and those tool sets mm -hmm. efficiently and effectively so that we can enable our organization. So we put a, we're putting a big emphasis there. Um, we're also putting a lot of emphasis around automation, um, mm. and, uh, some of it's a little bit more rudimentary robotic process automation. I do think as the world evolves, there's going to be a lot more drive towards hyper automation. Um, how can you, uh, really go deep in automating our processes? I mentioned, I was going to get back to AI and this yeah. is where AI becomes interesting is when you start to get into the hyper automation, you have to decide how far you're willing to let AI go. And right. that's sometimes a very philosophical discussion huh. uh, for people. So, for example, are you willing to let a robot hire for you based on resumes or data that a robot is looking at? Are you allow, Are you hmm. going to allow that kind of artificial intelligence to determine who comes into your workforce? Wow. Maybe not that far. Maybe you're going to take it, well, I'm going to use artificial intelligence to narrow down my candidate pool a little bit mm -hmm. different or, hmm. or, or for another means. So it becomes a very interesting dynamic um, in the area of automation how much you let AI evolve and take over. And I yeah. think we're going to see a lot of that over the next 10 years, especially. I think it's going to be um, hmm. becoming more and more of our lives. Um, the other space that I'm starting to look a little bit more at is um, the ideas of autonomy. And if you look at the dynamics of hmm. people, um, as well as autonomous things, vehicles, as an example, they start to take on a bit of a life of their own. And so people want a, a little bit more autonomy in how they work. They want to be where they want to be. They want to live where they want to live. They want to mm -hmm. work when they want to work. You also have, you know, delivery vehicles and, and, and other things of that nature um, that, you know, create their own little economies in, in and of themselves, being able to take orders and take currency and maybe mm -hmm. a, a card um, uses that money that it gets for a service it provides and uses that money to then buy itself some new tires. So it becomes a little bit more of an autonomous thing. So that's something that I want to look at more and yeah. primarily because I want to understand how it's going to and think through how it will impact manufacturing more yes. and more. That's the business that I'm in. Um, so those are a, a couple of the technologies. Um, mm -hmm. You mentioned blockchain. Yeah. Um, I think for a very, very long time, blockchain was a 
solution looking for a problem. Uh, I've heard that so many times. I was always trying to find CIOs who would come to our events and would get up on stage and talk about a blockchain case study. You know, how I won XYZ with using blockchain technologies. And a lot of even financial services companies who were some of the very first to start using that kind of that idea of the automated ledger and the the virtual ledger. Uh, Everybody was doing things in their labs and in a test kind of way, but it wasn't out in the real world. Are you about to tell me it's finally out? <laughs> I don't know if it's quite out yet, yeah. I think, although I do think it does have a, a more of a play going forward than I probably gave it credit for a few years ago. Okay. Um, and I say that really because of the rise of some of the cyber challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, the, That's a good the point. The technology of the mm-hmm. blockchain and its ability to validate you know, a transaction and an entity um, potentially can be... The reason why I felt it was a problem looking for a solution looking for a problem is it's a very technically challenging technology to understand. Sometimes it's not easy for for uh-huh. most of us to understand it very plainly and easily. And mm-hmm. and frankly, a lot of the use cases for early blockchain are we already had solutions for. It was just trying to do it in a more secure way. Yeah. And so I think as cybersecurity becomes more of a challenge, it's how do we shift those things that we already have solutions for into maybe blockchain just because of some of the security elements. Of it. Mm-hmm. I'm not willing to throw all my eggs in that basket at this point, but I do think it is something that is now going to start to evolve maybe a little bit better into some of those non-cryptocurrency use cases. Okay. Well, it's interesting. I know I came across a um, CIO I know who works at a seafood company. They were using blockchain to track everything from when they pulled a fish out of the ocean off of India all the way to a dining room table, and it became a really good way to do that. Um, and another uh, another CIO was using it in the art industry to track provenance on artwork and you know keep keep track of all that. So there'd been you know, we always get so excited when we find actual real-world case studies of it. And it does seem like in the smart factories of the future that the blockchain angle would have to be there. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's going to play a part uh, yeah. as we go forward. So it's something that we'll be spending a little bit of time looking more into. Mm-hmm. Um, we to get some of these foundational things in place yeah. first, we felt. Um, but I do think it's something that... Um, it's got more legs than it probably did three years ago. Okay, yeah. Well, I'm thinking about, I think it was Bill Gates a while ago said that the technologies that people think will be actively in our workplaces and our lives in two years often take 10 years. But in some cases, I feel like the pandemic reverses that in some cases. You know, I, uh, three years ago, CIOs would have told you that using video conferencing and video technologies to meet and talk and as part of our daily lives was going to take a decade to get people used to it. And then when we all had to, it took two weeks, you know, when we were yeah. we were online. The pandemic showed us that we can absorb technology a lot faster than we anticipated. Yes, That's yes. Talk about a few, um, as we get wrapping up here, um, talk about a few of the other things that the pandemic has taught you as a leader. Uh, When I asked you this before, you mentioned that you've found some different ways to drive collaboration that maybe maybe felt awkward at first, but are now quite natural. So um, talk talk about that, about what you've learned as a leader. You know, I, I think what, for me, it really put an emphasis kind of something we talked about earlier, and that is um, really, it was something I always believed in, and tried to drive for, but it, it, it really kind of hit at home. And, and that's this understanding that 
most people mm-hmm. work so they can live. They don't live to work. Um, now, some people live to work and that, that's okay. Mm-hmm. But most of us, you know, we, we, we go to work, we work hard to do what we can to live the lives we want to live. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic, obviously, um, in many ways, you hear about this all the time, is, is created an even broader blend of life and work together. Yes. And I think mm-hmm. as a leader, what it, it, it taught me is I, I need to continually listen to the team on what their needs are. Mm-hmm. And think through how we can purposefully collaborate, um, but not force everybody to be in a room together at the same time all the time. Right. Um, and that's hard for me, transparently, to collaborate remotely. It's yeah. not something that I do naturally all that mm-hmm. well. And it's like I had to, I've had to learn how to do that better. Do I ever think you know being online is going to completely match being in a room and whiteboarding with people? No, no I don't. Me neither. Um, mm-hmm. But it, it's allowed me to be a little bit more patient on some of the things and allow people to go off and run uh, and maybe come back mm-hmm. uh, rather than I was having to solve it all together in a room. Sometimes yeah. you can take one or two people and break out and come back to the broader group. Again, rather than having everybody in the room together, those are some of the, I guess, more tactical things that I've had to mm-hmm. adapt um, and learn over the last uh, couple of years. Yeah. Well, I think probably most CIOs would tell you that the main, the toughest, the biggest hurdles in their jobs usually revolve around change management. And there was, I feel like in a way, the pandemic gave everybody a big helping hand with that because the change was absolutely necessary and everybody was pretty much on the kind of the same level playing field. I think about even in um, like in the boardrooms, boards of directors all around the world would have told you that the idea of meeting with each other virtually just wasn't going to work for the kind of things they do. You needed to be in the room. And somehow the room has become much more of a blend of virtual and real world. And it's just, and I think also in a lot of ways, IT leadership has rose so quickly and so effectively to the challenge. I feel like it's given the entire profession a huge boost just in that credibility as a genuine part of the business. It sounds like you already had that underway at Coorstech, so congratulations on that. But I imagine I imagine that it didn't hurt to have uh, the IT folks feel kind of like heroes in the in in the actions they were able to take. Yeah, we, we got a lot of heroes in the IT function here. I, I like I said many times mm-hmm. in the call, I'm, I'm really blessed with the talent that we have. Um, you know, it's not been easy for them um, at times or for the users, but mm-hmm. you know, we we were in pretty good shape. We had a lot of the tools already ready to rock and roll, and yeah. we were using some, and some we just had to use more. Yeah, uh, and and the team just um, amazed me <laughs> at how rapidly they they came up with new creative ways to help people collaborate and work from home or um, mm-hmm. whatever they need to do. And and even today, they continue to do that. Um, and uh, just really blessed to have such a fantastic team. That's great. That's great. Okay. Well, thank you so much for joining us here today. I feel like we I learned a, a whole lot about what's happening in the world of smart factories. And it was just a pleasure talking with you, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Mary Fran. My pleasure. 
If you joined us late today, don't worry. You can watch the full episode later here today on LinkedIn, but also on CIO.com later today and on our YouTube channel, which is IDG's Tech Talk channel. CIO Leadership Live is also available as an audio podcast wherever you get your podcast today. And I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Matt Melbeck as much as I did. He's the VP of IT for Coors Tech Incorporated out in Golden, Colorado. And that you'll come back and join us again in two weeks on at noon Eastern on Monday, March 23rd, when I'll be joined by CIO Ralph Laura of Lumentum. Thanks again for joining us today, and remember to take that moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel, IDG Tech Talk, where you can find all of the previous episodes of CIO Leadership Live, which is getting up over 80 in-depth interviews now with CIOs, and I keep encouraging people to just do some binge-watching. I, I, I sometimes watch them again myself, and I always learn things from our very good friends, the Chief Information Officers and the IT Leaders. Thank you so much. Stay well, and we'll see you here next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.